Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday to gather with your beloved saints, to put ourselves under the means of grace, to fellowship, to pray, to search the scriptures, to be encouraged in our mutual faith. And Lord, we give you the glory for everything you've done in our doing, in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we go. We're going to try to be a little more disciplined about how we do interaction and conversation. Like we do on Tuesday nights, we want to have the lecture go straight through and then leave time at the end and then have our discussion. Okay, I think the, lear- the whole process of learning will be better that way for everybody. So hold your questions till I'm done. Yeah, and I'll stop early if I have to to make sure we got time for that. I want to talk about preaching the gospel to the church. One of the myths that's believed by a lot of people is that the church itself, uh, once you're already saved or what have you, then you really don't need the gospel anymore. The gospel only is for taking out to people that never heard it before. But as a matter of fact, the gospel is necessary for the benefit of the church as well as the lost. And so, therefore, we need to preach the gospel to the church. And I'm going to give seven reasons for that, but we'll start with uh, the book of Romans here. Paul had never been in Rome, okay? And he was writing to the church in Rome. And so Paul said this, So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul wanted to preach the gospel to the church in Rome because they need to hear it as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The truth of the gospel needs to be constantly reinforced in the hearts and minds of Christians. The fact that we are already saved does not mean we don't need to hear the gospel anymore. That was a real bad thing in my life. When I was a new Christian, one of the worst beliefs I had that led me astray for nearly 10 years was the idea that the gospel was just a first step. And so if you prayed the sinner's prayer or made a decision or whatever, however you understood it back in those days, that's all over with. Now let's go on to something else. Well, my desire to go on to something else kept leading me further and further from the gospel itself until it became almost an afterthought. And then we ended up in everything under the sun from inner healing to deliverance to shepherding, you name it, all these things that came through town I ended up part of. And the gospel was so crowded into a corner, it was an afterthought. Literally, it was it had no place on the center stage of anything that was going on in the movement that I was a part of in the 70s. But once you realize how bad that is, and you start going back to becoming a Bible church, and you start going through the New Testament, you, the gospel's everywhere. And Paul wrote about the gospel to churches. So that we need to keep in mind. Here are the seven benefits that I'm going to outline for you today. Number one, the lost will be converted because lost people do show up in church and people bring their friends and family and what have you. 
Number two, those not converted will be convicted. God wants to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Number three, the saints will be unified in the gospel. That's one of the fantastic benefits, by the way, that I wish we would have known that 30 years ago. It would have been a good thing if I would have understood that. Number four, the gospel sanctifies Christians. Number five, saints will be motivated to evangelize. The more the gospel becomes a part of what you hear and do, the more you talk about it wherever you go. Six, preaching the gospel does what creeds do, only better. And, um, boy, I know that from my youth. I was in a creedal church, and we said the creeds every Sunday, but I never had any idea that I should actually believe them. <laughs> it was just something you do because you went to church. If somebody would have preached it to me and said, no, you, that's you, sinner, you repent, that would have been way better for me. Number seven, the gospel creates hope in the hearts of Christians. Let's outline some of these. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. I love 1 Corinthians 1. Eric has the privilege of teaching that to us here in the near future. And what a fantastic chapter of the Bible. As Eric pointed out, the Greeks, what were they looking for? Sophia and Gnosis. They wanted Sophia and Gnosis, and they especially wanted, which is wisdom and knowledge, and they especially wanted it from the mouth of somebody trained in rhetoric. Okay? And so Paul wasn't offering human wisdom, and he wasn't trained in rhetoric, so he was deficient as far as they were concerned. It says in this passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with the wisdom, that's Sophia, of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the message of the cross is the power of God, therefore it must be preached. The tendency to gravitate to human wisdom was not simply something that happened in the city of Corinth. We have the same thing today. All across America today, people are gathering in churches and hearing sermons, in many cases, that consist of human wisdom. Okay? Here's how you do this, and here's how you become happy, and here's how you solve problems, and here's how you reduce stress, and here's how you... And, and why are all these how-to sermons so popular? Well, I blame this on the church growth movement, which suggested that you need to have a message that will be attractive to the people that you're targeting, and that's not Christians. I've been listening to these CDs, and I actually am now in the midst of writing an article about this, of this guy that teaches pastors how to transition their church from a Bible church to a purpose-driven church. And he said some stuff on the CDs that even goes beyond what's in his book, and one of the things he said was that if anybody comes and complains about this, in other words, people will come and say, Pastor, will you please preach the gospel? Pastor, will you please teach us the Bible? Pastor, can we sing hymns and, and spiritual songs that glorify God and point us to the blood and so on like that? And the pastor says, what's wrong with you? The church is not for you. So you're selfish. The church is for everybody out there. It isn't for you. Well, I'm saying in my article that he's equivocating on the term church. The church is you. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Why did God make a church if it wasn't for the benefit of his sheep that he saved and purchased with his blood? The church doesn't exist for the benefit of 
the community so that the community could be happy. So that what happens is the message of the cross and the preaching of the gospel is taken out of the pulpit because there's nobody in the community out there that wants to hear that unless they're already converted. All right? That's the problem. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, and please God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now he's using the term foolishly foolishness ironically. Paul isn't saying literally it's really foolish for you to go preach the gospel. No. He, what he's saying is if you just take a poll of the lost people out in the world and ask them what they are looking for in a church, not a single one of them will say gospel preaching. They'll say something else. They may say, I want something relevant, I want something fun, I want something interesting, I want something exciting, I want something to help me solve my problems. But they don't. the need for the cross doesn't happen in our hearts until after the Holy Spirit pierces us to the heart. And he does so through the preaching of the cross. So this whole idea is just a poison pill for the church. And it's, it's unbelievable. The guy who was teaching these pastors to get away from Bible preaching claims, and this was back probably in 2004 when these recordings were made, he actually claims that he's trained 21,000 pastors. And they're eager to hear this stuff. And so these pastors are falling all over each other trying to get trained to get the gospel out of their church. Not one of them will say that's what they're actually trying to do. They're saying, no, we've got to get the lost in, and then we'll convince them. He calls them the unconvinced. Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, our theology is so watered down these days, it's unbelievable. Our problem isn't being convinced. Our problem is we need to be convicted. Okay, somebody might make a decision, oh, I think Christianity is okay, and so I'll go to church. That is not being converted. We need the Holy Spirit to pierce deep into our hearts where, where we feel the pain of our own sin against God and, and feel how badly we need God to forgive us. And that's not going to happen with these watered-down sermons. We need to preach the gospel to the church and then... God will convert people if they do come into the church or they'll get mad and leave. All right? That's not a bad outcome. I'll show you that in a bit. Those not converted, okay, we we admit preaching the gospel is not going to convert everybody. It never was going to convert everybody. Okay? It did not do so any time during the book of Acts. I don't know how many thousands, there's different estimates of how many thousands and thousands were at the day of Pentecost. 3,000 are converted. That's a, a small percentage of them. But that's the church. It's the ones who are convicted by the Holy Spirit. It says in John 15:26 and 27, when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit is always going to lead us to confess Christ. All right? We need to confess Christ. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul uses the phrase preaching Christ synonymously with preaching the gospel. All right? When I did get to talk to one of the top leaders in the entire secret movement, the thing I pleaded with him to do was preach Christ. And I used that term. 
Because he might say, oh, yeah, I preach the gospel, which he really doesn't. But I know he doesn't preach Christ, because I listen to all of these messages, and that's not what he's preaching. Preaching Christ is what the Holy Spirit wants us to do, because he testifies. And so if somebody is moved by the Spirit, that person will testify about Christ. And God will use that, according to John 16, 8 through 11, to convict. And he, when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit who testifies about Christ, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. And this is precisely what we see happening in the book of Acts. Okay? The outcome was that some were saved at the end of the church and others were so angry they went and stoned Stephen. But they were convicted. <laughs> they were faced with their own sin and their own wickedness. I have a suggestion, and this, this is not God's law, but I know a lot of us here are evangelists, and I've seen a number of tracts that different people have produced from within our congregation. I appreciate that. And I also believe in preaching the law and the gospel. But I want to have a little suggestion for our evangelists. Just my idea. You don't have to listen to me. Here's my suggestion. I've looked at some of these tracts, and they went for page after page after page about why you're a sinner. There's nothing wrong with that. All these scriptures, you know, the Ten Commandments, the sin, this sin, that sin. And so people are being faced with the fact they're sinners. But I think when somebody starts reading that, they don't know where you're going. And they may read a couple pages in and say, you know, this is, wow, yuck. And never get to the point about Christ. Now let me give you a little pattern that Paul used in Romans that I think would be better. Just my suggestion. I love what you're doing, okay? Just my suggestion. When Paul was going to do that, and he was going to preach the gospel through his letter, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also the Gentiles. He said that first. And then he went into sin. So they knew why. Okay, the reason he's telling about their sin is because he's, they know up front he's going somewhere. And that is the gospel of salvation. So they know that, that this is about Christ up front. And then all the rest of Romans 1 was about sin. All of Romans 2 was about sin. The first part of Romans 3 was about sin. And then he went back to the gospel and he claimed justification, the blood atonement, propitiation, and all these great things. My suggestion, dear evangelists, and I love you very much, is somewhere up front, let them know that the reason you're there is about the gospel of Christ. Amen. Then go to the law. That's a good pattern because you can find it in the book of Romans. All right, And God will still use it powerfully. Look at what happened when Stephen preached the gospel. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Okay, what does that mean? Convicted. But they didn't come to faith. They gnashed at him with their teeth. <laughs> and they, they put their hands over their ears and they went after him and they got stones and they, and they killed him. But that's, you know, that doesn't usually happen here in America, but that's one outcome that might come from gospel preaching. That's, that's the way it's always been. So we need not back off from gospel preaching because it convicts people. We ought to be convicted. Let me go on here. Philippians 127. 
Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, this is the third point. The saints will be unified in the gospel. This is magnificent. Absolutely, this is so true, and I believe it, and I see it, and I experience it. All right? You know, we had plenty of problems with disunity at, in Twin City Fellowship while we were trying to figure out who we were. Remember, Dick? <laughs> and there were some battles and issues and stuff like that that uh, some people wanted to be a charismatic church and some people wanted other things to be happening. There were even people that wanted more of a program-oriented church. We, we had a hard time getting on one page. But after I heard John MacArthur talk about restoring a disheartened pastor's joy, and I became convinced that the only thing I needed to be certain that happens is that the gospel is preached, because that's the greatest privilege God ever gave a person is to preach the gospel. And we just got focused on that. The end result was we ended up unified. And all of all those battles and problems and stuff kind of just were extremely minimized. And the reason for that is that God uses the gospel to unify us. We're striving together with one mind, striving together for what? The faith of the gospel. See, the problem with this uh, these CDs I'm listening to is the guy wants to unify everybody around the pastor's vision. Okay? And so all of the messages are based on the concept of vision, and he's equivocating on the term vision because in the Bible, vision comes from God's infallible prophets, not from the imagination of the pastor. So I could imagine, let's say I imagine that here in St. Louis Park we'd have a magnificent facility that would seat 2,000 people and we're going to fill it. And let's say that's my vision. And then I'm going to sell you on that. That's where you need to put your money. That's where you need to put your prayers. You need to work for that. And and then you just go through the steps of implementing this vision. And anybody that doesn't get with it, you just ask them to go find somewhere else to go to church. But that's not the unity that Paul's talking about, is it? He's striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what unifies us. And, and frankly, it makes sense because the first unity that a Christian ever experiences is the unity of the Spirit. Remember in Ephesians, Paul says to preserve the unity of the Spirit? Well, the unity of the Spirit was created by God converting us, and we're one with other Christians because we have the same Lord. And the gospel keeps us in that place of unity. The gospel created the unity by conversion, and the unity of the Spirit, and it keeps us there. I wish pastors would understand this. It would sure make life better in the evangelical movement if, if they did. Ephesians 4, here, I already alluded to this. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's our unity. How could this be anything but unity? We're all in the same boat. We're, we're, we're Christians on the, in the process of being sanctified with the same faith, and God created it when he converted us. And so anything the church does that distracts from the gospel 
is actually an attack against Christian unity. If I try to get everybody around on my idea of some human program, it's an attack against the unity that God created. You don't have to unify around any program that somebody might dream up. Now, we can have programs, and we might get excited about them, but what we try to do, and I think pretty well happens, is that all the programs are about the gospel. Okay, If you come to the armor bearers, it's about the gospel. If you go to the, the, that Seder, I wasn't there, but it's, I know it's about the gospel. I've been to it a number of times. If you come to the ladies' Bible study, it's about the gospel. If you come to Sunday school, it's about the gospel. And, you know, in the whole counsel of God and so forth. And so that doesn't distract from unity because God did this. God put us in this condition and he doesn't want us to do something to mess it up. Heresy, uh, the word heresy, heresis in the Greek means choice. And what heresy is, is somebody making a choice of their own about what they want to believe and where they want to go. And that's heresy. And you create a faction. But the truth of the, of the New Testament will always funnel us toward unity because there's only one real true message. And we should be preserving that. So preaching the gospel of the church will unify the church. The gospel sanctifies Christians. And I believe this with all my heart. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So the promises come from God himself, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. I have done a Sunday school recently on this. I think it was right the day before Christmas or something. The last Sunday school in December, I did a whole lecture based on Second Peter chapter 1. And some of you were probably here. But the promises of God are so important. And the gospel contains promises. When Dick and I were, we finished our radio, by the way, I think this week the last of the Hebrew ones went up on one place or was being broadcast. So now all of Hebrews is done. But one of the things that was impressive about Hebrews, especially chapter 11, is how important it is to know the promises of God and believe them. Okay? Abraham believed God because God made promises to Abraham, and he went forward in his faith, even though some of the times it seemed improbable. You know, he's too old. Why would I be going to sacrifice Isaac up on Mount Moriah? when we finally got the promise here. But he believed God could raise the dead. So the gospel comes with promises to us, such as those found in Romans 8. If we believe them and have them as part of our heart and mind, God uses that to sanctify us. And I promise you that that's true. And so the pastors and teachers and what have you need to put the gospel in the promises of God out in front of the people. Now, it's important to know what is and isn't promised. Now, the word of faith people would say the same thing, only they believe that God promised what God never promised. You know, God promised to make you wealthy. God promised that you'll never be sick. But he never promised those things. So you're believing something God never said. 
But if I say that nothing will separate you from the love of God, not even Satan and demons and principalities and powers and enemies in this world, anything created, if I tell you that, that's the promise of God. And you can take that and bring it into your mind and heart and believe it, and then it will have a practical effect of sanctifying you, and and it's very practical. I, I, I remember when we first started pushing to be a, a total Bible church and uh, kind of in the late 80s and, and so on, one of the criticisms that I came under was, well, you don't teach anything practical. And that was a hard thing to get through people's minds because they didn't think it was practical to have the Bible taught to them. They thought a practical sermon would be telling us how to deal with children or how to deal with other workers and what have you. Okay, now listen. I maybe could do that. I don't know if I'd be any good at it or not because uh, my kids are raised and grandkids, they can do no wrong. <laughs> at least in the eyes of Grandma and Grandpa. <laughs> you know, they, but uh, here's the deal. The most practical thing that could happen in your life would be for God to sanctify you because then you start living Christ-like lives And that will reflect in your family. That will reflect in how you treat your fellow workers. That will reflect in your marriages. I'm not saying you can't have topical seminars, but I don't want to get distracted because I know God is going to sanctify you, and when he does, I'll tell you, if you're a wife, the best husband you could have would be a sanctified one. One of the I remember Vishal Magawandi, I can't say his last name, Vishal, you know who he is. If you if you know who he is, he said one of the. <laughs> I don't have to say his last name. I can't. <laughs> Anyhow, he he said one of the things that happened to Eve when when she ate the forbidden fruit and tempted Adam to do the same is now the consequence is she's married to a sinner. <laughs> okay. So I'm telling you, wives, you'd like to be married to a sanctified man and vice versa. And so we want to provide the means of sanctification, which are the great and magnificent promises of God. And that is practical. There's nothing more practical than this. Let me just promise you that. He goes on and says this, For he who lacks these qualities is blind. Now I talked about eight virtues in the, in the meantime there, okay, the eight virtues. He who lacks these qualities is blind or or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. He doesn't say if you're, if you're not developing Christian virtues, you just went to the wrong seminar. He says you forgot what the gospel is about. 1 Peter 1.12, here's what he says, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. So, Peter knew full well he was writing to the church to tell them things they'd already knew. And so some folks would think, okay, we know about the gospel, now go to some other topic. Where we want a deeper understanding. We want, we want to have a high, they used to call it the high life, the deeper life, the whatever, which leads people into all manner of error. Peter didn't look at it that way. I'm preaching these to you, and he said he actually goes on to say, as long as I'm in this earthly vessel, I'm going to keep doing it. If you're tired of hearing about the gospel, then Peter's not the guy you want to listen to. 
That's what he says. It sanctifies Christians. Galatians 3, 1 through 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Rhetorical question. The answer is, of course, by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is very important. Galatians 3.3. Don't forget this verse. I wish I would have believed this when I was about 24 or 25 years old. All right. When I was a young man, I wanted the deeper life. I wanted some better version of Christianity than just the ordinary one that I was exposed to in Bible college. And I had professors who sat me down and warned me, more than one, that I was going off into air. But I wasn't satisfied with just going to church, singing There's Power in the Blood, hearing a gospel message, and then learning the Bible. I wanted the deeper life. I wanted to be the best kind of Christian. I wanted to be a kingdom Christian. I wanted to be a, a whatever, somebody more spiritual than ordinary Christians. And so I went off into air, following like Watchman Nee and stuff like that, trying to be this super Christian. But here Paul would say, no. The way you begin the Christian life is the way you walk in it. You don't go on to some plan B now that you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit comes through the hearing of faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So please, dear beloved saints, understand that the gospel is what we have. Okay? And don't ever get tired of it. Because I'm telling you, there's a million plan Bs out there and they're all bad. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Notice that, with gentleness and reverence. There are other verses that say the same thing, like 2 Timothy 2.24 and so on. Our projection of the gospel to the lost should be done with gentleness and reverence, but it should be firm. We're not going to back down. We're not going to compromise. But we don't need our own wrath. You remember uh, James says the wrath of man doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. Okay? Now, one of the things about people going to a church where the gospel is preached is it becomes part of their heart and soul and it becomes important to them. And when it becomes important to them, they're highly motivated to share the gospel with everyone they know, their family, their lost co-workers, anybody. They just are motivated, and it becomes part of them. One of the things that's gratifying to me is this has happened quite a few times where somebody brings a piece of paper from one of their kids, not, not old kids, I'm talking about 8, 9, 10, whatever, and somebody did that maybe about last year. They, they gave me one. And here the kid wrote out the gospel perfectly because it was so part of hearing it in church. And so somebody asked this little girl what the gospel was. Oh, yeah, 
Christ exists as God with God. He came into this world. And, 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 and the, the, the young kid could preach Christ. And, and also I've heard stories about young kids that have been in armor bearers here who are answering Bible questions for adults. <laughs> okay? Because they're so well-versed in it. I can't think of anything better to do for our children than to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything better to do for the church than to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the most heartbreaking stories I hear, and I've heard it, I can't tell you how many, I I wish I would have just started a a counter when I started hearing these five or six years ago. I cannot tell you how many times I've got calls and emails from and letters from saints all around the world whose church ditched the gospel for some man-made program. And these saints ask me what to do, and I tell them the same thing every time. Go to your pastor and ask him to preach Christ. Ask him to preach the gospel. That's what you want to hear when you come to church and to teach the Bible. And almost universally they've been rebuffed and said, well, maybe you should go to a different church. How hard-hearted can you get? What kind of a pastor has a heart of stone that cannot... And, and, and they call these people, in this seminar that I'm listening to now, these people are called the whiners and complainers. The, the whiners and complainers. So you say, dear pastor, preach the gospel. I want to bring my lost friends. Dear pastor, preach the word. Oh, you're a whiner. Go somewhere else. What? And you call yourself evangelical? Where does the word evangelical come from? Evangelion. What does it mean? Gospel. Take the, take the name off of your church. Although I, as it's so poison, now keep it on your church. We took it off ours. <laughs> we finally took it off and said Bible, gospel preaching Bible church. So everybody would know that what we actually do here, you know, both they're going to come and visit. Be ready to give a defense. The church will become ready if the pastors preach the gospel to them. Uh, Colossians 1, 5, and 6, the preaching the gospel does what creeds do, only better. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Colossians 1 has what's called the Christ hymn. The Colossians were some of these people that wanted a deeper life Christianity. They went, and you know about this, if you came to Eric's class, they were worried about the stoichia getting them, the hostile powers, and they had amulets and uh, visions, and they had different things they were going to do to try to be better Christians. And what Paul does to correct them is he preaches Christ to them. He writes to him about the sufficiency of Christ. You already have everything in Christ. I'm in contact with a guy the last two weeks who goes to a massive church that's gone into the spiritual warfare movement. And he's an influential guy, and he's been spending a lot of effort trying to get through to the pastors, and he's preparing material to try to get through to them to say, this is wrong. I had him listen to that sermon I did about how Satan was part of this council that God sent to do certain things, like in Job, and that these people rebuking Satan are rebuking God unknowingly. 
So he's trying to do that. I don't know if it'll do any good, but people are seduced by something that sounds better than the gospel. Right? The gospel didn't do everything I hoped it would do in my life. I still don't have enough money, or maybe I'm under a spiritual curse, or maybe the demons are getting me. And they go somewhere else. But Paul points it back to the gospel. Now, what I mean about creeds, I'm not somebody who thinks creeds are wrong. Don't get me wrong. And if you're hearing this and you go to a church that has creeds, I'm not criticizing you because there's creeds. If the creeds express the truth of the gospel, then I thank God for them. And in some cases, that's probably the only gospel that ever gets into these churches because the pastor doesn't believe it. I've been... I've been to a funeral where they had the creed that had the gospel in, but when somebody got up that we know and preached the gospel, the pastor was upset about it. Well, how come you can... Okay, you can have the creed that will tell me about Christ, but if somebody actually preaches Christ, then we're going to want them to go away. That's a problem. And here's why it's a problem. If the creed isn't reinforced by preaching from the pulpit the people will get the idea that the creed is just some sort of a thing somebody a few hundred years ago said we had to say. I know because I grew up in one of those churches. And we said the creeds every Sunday, but never was the content of it reinforced by any preaching from the pulpit. So I figured it was just obligatory. Okay? The pastor didn't preach Christ to me, so the only Christ I knew about was the one who came to judge the quick and the dead, whoever the quick were. Okay. I didn't, I, I, I'm embarrassed. I was in college before I figured that out. I think I was in Bible college before I figured that out. Well, they're, they're the alive ones. Okay, I get it now. <laughs> so if the gospel's preached in a pulpit, everybody in the church will have in their heart an absolute solid foundation of who Jesus Christ is, what he did, why we need him, and what he expects of us. That's the four points that I go through. Who Christ is. That's, that, I do that purposely because I believe the gospel is about preaching Christ. And so it, it's a little different order than some people would do, but who Christ is, what he did, why we need him is where the law comes in. All right? We need him because we're sinners who broke God's law. But what he expects is to repent and to believe. And that functions if it's in the church every Sunday just as well or better than a creed. I'd say better. And I talked to a Presbyterian pastor I met out at a conference, and we were meeting in his church, and he had some stuff about the Christ hymn that I asked for permission to use. And he said to me that he, and they have a creedal church, okay, Presbyterian is creedal, and he said that he agrees with me that preaching the gospel does what creeds do only better. He agreed. What then? Philippians 1.18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. For if Christ is proclaimed, we rejoice, because that's what God wants. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. This is a genitive, and there's a discussion about what whether it's an objective or subjective genitive. Is it the word that comes from Christ, or is the word about Christ as the object of, of the word? And some, I've seen some scholars talk about a plenary genitive. Have you heard that one, Eric? Yes, both. A plenary genitive would be both, and it's true. It comes from Christ, and he's the topic about it. So we should preach Christ. The gospel creates hope in hearts of Christians. Romans 8, 24. Oops, I have a typo there. Uh, Probably 25 is the correct one. 
For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I've heard this verse mocked on the radio by one of our local pastors who believes in open theism. He hates this verse. And, and he, well, what he was mocking was any Christian that believed it. Okay? And I turned, I turned on the radio and I heard this, like, why are you mocking us for having hope that God's going to work everything out in our life. Well, this guy believes in the warfare worldview, not the providential one or the sovereign one. And so he, I think I know why people object to Romans 8.28. Here's, here's why they object to it. It really only gives hope to Christians. And, and a lot of people are looking for a, a, a philosophy or theology that gives hope to everybody regardless of whether they come to Christ or not like the emergent thing where everything's going to get better and better and better and paradise is coming and so on. And so this is a precious promise that's given to Christians and only to Christians, those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, Romans eight twenty nine and 30, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Dear ones, if we're, conform- if we're predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son then we should want to hear about his son. We want to know the nature and person of Jesus Christ, the very one God wants to conform us to, to make us light, to have us grow into. Christ needs to be preached to the church. And I love to hear the gospel myself. I, I rejoice. Do you go? Have you ever gone somewhere? In a, maybe it was a place where you never would have expected to hear the gospel, and you did. Isn't that exciting? I love that. But then on the other hand, you go places where the gospel ought to be, and it's not, and that's very disappointing. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he called, and whom he called, these he justified, and whom he justified, these he glorified. Notice the using the past tense in the sense of prophetic certainty. Okay, it's it's certain that we will be glorified, and so that's our hope. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll do a little bit of this, Jerry Bridges. We put this on our reference link. He uh, wrote an essay that claims the gospel itself is a sanctifying agent that God uses. And I believe that's true. He says this, Though sin can wage war against us, hence our struggle, it cannot reign over us. That is also part of the gospel. When I use the term gospel, dear brothers and sisters, I'm not just talking about those four points about who Christ is, what he did, why we need him and what he expects of us. I'm also talking about all the related things that come up that's part of the gospel, such as justification. What does justification mean? Sanctification, what does that mean? What does it mean for the Christian to be dead to sin, but yet still have sin? How can that be true? That's a gospel issue. Okay, Paul raises that in Romans 6. 
Then he then the problem comes up again in Romans 7, and then the answer comes in Romans 8. All of these are related to the gospel itself. We're not just using the term in its most narrow sense. We're using it in the broader sense of covering everything that has to do with our relationship to God and how we grow in it. And so the issue of struggling against sin is a gospel issue. Okay, that's part of the gospel, Bridges says, continuing my quote. But the success of our struggle with sin begins with our believing deep down in our hearts that regardless of our failures and our struggle, we have died to sin's guilt. Absolutely. Forensic justification. Forensic justification. Forensic means legal. It has to do with the imputed righteousness of Christ. This was what the Reformation battle was all about. What did the Roman Catholic Church say about forensic justification? They said it is, quote, legal fiction, unquote. Legal fiction. What do they mean by that? Well, God will not declare the sinner justified until there's no sin in the sinner. That's not what the Bible says. Okay? And so you never have any hope of being justified until you go through a process and then you die. And so then you've got to have a purgatory to deal with the fact that you never got through it in this life. It's legal fiction. Charles Finney called the same thing legal fiction. Same term the Catholics use. Okay? But here we need to know, back to uh, Bridges, that we've died to sin's guilt. We need to know that. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. We must believe that however often we fail, there's no condemnation for us. Romans 8, 1, says Bridges. Continuing. For a growing Christian, desire will always outstrip performance or at least precede performance. What is it then that will keep us going in the face of this tension between desire and performance? What does he mean? We want to be like Jesus Christ, but when we look at ourselves and we realize we're not. Okay? The answer is the gospel. The answer is the gospel. We need to be here to declaration over and over again that our guilt is forgiven. My dear friend Chris Roseborough, who studied theology in a Lutheran seminary, after being in one kind of movement after another that just about destroyed him, his story is a lot like mine. He was in even worse things than I was. And I drove him. He was, he was, he said he was suicidal. He was hopeless. He, 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 didn't, he tried these intense, pietistic ways of being Christian, and everything was hopeless and hopeless and hopeless. And he ended up studying under a Lutheran theologian out in California to, to try to find the answer, sort of like a Luther thing. I've got to find the answer to this, to my own guilt. And there he found the true gospel, that sins are forgiven through Christ's finished work. All right? And Luther, uh, that, that was everything to him because that was his struggle. He never could find the answer until he found the forgiveness of sins through the gospel. So though I'm not Lutheran, I have, uh, I have a, an affinity for those who uh, love Lutheran theology because the one thing they do emphasize is that sins are forgiven. You hear that all the time. Sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. That when they talk, when they have communion, they deal with the Matthew section of uh, the Lord's Supper, where it says this was given for the forgiveness of sins. Luther wanted everybody to know that, and so, dear ones, we need to know 
that sins are forgiven. The answer is the gospel. As the assurance of the gospel says, Bridges, that we have indeed died to the guilt of sin, there's no condemnation. He says that will motivate us and keep us going in the face of the tension. What tension? Between the fact that we're not yet perfected. Okay? We must always keep focused on the gospel because it is the nature of sanctification that as we grow, we see more and more of our sinfulness. Absolutely true. I heard this story from somebody. I didn't hear it firsthand, but I'm going to share it anyhow. Somebody heard John MacArthur asked whether he sins less now than he used to. (laughs) Something like that. And he says, yes, I sin less, but I feel worse about it. And that's what he's talking about here. (laughs) I feel worse about it. Because the more you understand the holiness of God, the more you realize how wicked sin is. Whatever you have left in you, it's terrible. And you feel worse about it. So that's why we need the gospel. Okay, so he says, the nature of sanctification, says Bridges, that is, we grow, we see more and more of our sinfulness. Instead of driving us to discouragement, though, this should drive us to the gospel. (laughs) Amen. It is the gospel believed every day that is the only enduring motivation to pursue progressive sanctification, even in those times we don't seem to see progress. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to say amen to that. That's what drove, drives people into these deeper life, higher life, second blessing, whatever. They're looking for something. They're thinking, okay, I've got the gospel, and I've still got sin in my life, so there must be some plan B I've got to get into. And people are always offering it. It's everywhere. And it goes way back in history. This isn't new. These pietistic movements have gone on forever. You have the medieval monasticism of Rome where people went to try to beat sin out of themselves. They had the pietists, the enthusiasts, and so on, right after the Reformation. And they're all thinking they need something else. See, the error is to dissociate sanctification from justification. They're not the same, but one flows from the other. All right? And so hearing the gospel is what God uses to sanctify us and, and it keeps us from being discouraged about the fact that we're still not there. Keep us pressing on. I'm going to finish this quote and we'll have discussion. That, he says, that is why I use the expression gospel-driven sanctification. That is why we need to, quote, preach the gospel to ourselves every day. <laughs> Meaning, remind ourselves that our sins are forgiven, and on what basis that that's true. Okay, I went a little longer than I wanted, but we still got time for some questions. Larry. <laughs> now, you talked about this as the gospel, and this is one gospel. So Paul isn't teaching to the Gentiles, and Peter isn't teaching to the Jews, and they're all pulling from the same source, because I read your CIC on that. Yeah, there's people out there said that there's a different gospel for the Jews, and that Peter had a different one. Not true. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what they preach, this is what we preach. It's the same gospel. And it's based on what Christ did. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, Peter did not preach a different gospel. You know, Bob, um, lately uh, the issue of unity on non-essential items related to the gospel, such as eschatology, has come up. Could you just talk about what what are the essentials to the gospel and what is it that we could disagree upon Okay. and yet still call each other brothers and sisters. I think that may be an important... Okay, thank you. Very good. The essentials are what I've been talking about. The person and work of Christ, justification by faith, the imputed righteousness of Christ that we have standing before God as righteous, legally, all right, 
And the basic truths of the Christian life of what he expects us as far as the moral law of God, how we live and what it looks like to be sanctified. People are always going to have different ideas about eschatology. And they've always have. And why is that true? Well, because none of it has actually happened yet. There were different ideas about what Messiah would be like when he came, before he came. Why? Because it hadn't happened yet. That's not that anything was lacking in the Scripture to predict what was going to happen, but the fact is it wasn't apparent until it actually happened that what was literal about these prophecies and, that, and the fact that there was going to be two advents. Who knew that? Some people thought there were going to be two messiahs, but I don't know anybody thought that one messiah was going to come in two different advents. But what happened? One messiah comes and there's two advents. So we can... Study prophecy, we must, and we do, and we're doing it on Tuesday nights. But we must not become hostile or belligerent toward other brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why I can uh, learn things from people with different eschatologies. Okay, go ahead. I guess I was just thinking about, you know, uh, the importance to stress that Christ is our only mediator no Mary or yeah or anyone yeah. else. Yeah, let's talk about that. I should have added that to the answer to Eric's question. I think the solas of the Reformation are something that we are not going to compromise on. The solas are important. I will not give them up. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, why are they important? Because... If you take the alones, the solas out, you can go right back to Roman Catholicism and be perfectly happy because the Roman Catholic Church believed in Christ. They believed in grace. They believed in Scripture. They believed in God's glory. They believed in faith. And no problem. But as soon as you say alone, anathema, you can go to hell. If you say Faith alone, you shall go to hell as far as we're concerned, and you deserve it. Read the Council of Trent. Read the canons on justification. But, you know, I've had uh, so-called Protestants just as angry at me about this issue as Catholics because they don't want the alones. They want man to do his part. So God plus man doing cooperative effort results and sanctification, both salvation and sanctification. But then you just caved in. You go, back to, go back to Rome then. That's where you had it. Alone. <laughs> Somebody says, are you a five-point Calvinist? Because they're mad about TULIP. And I said, yeah, here's my five point points. Grace alone, faith alone. <laughs> I'm not going to debate TULIP with anybody, but I will debate the alone. So if you want to debate that, then start him out with the debate. Well, they, didn't, they feel a little queasy about debating the solas. So then it kind of silences the thing, yes. I was talking to a Catholic uh, friend of mine, and he was. we were talking about the anathemas of the Council of Trent, and he said, oh, they fixed that in Vatican II. I said, have you read Vatican II? But they didn't fix it. In uh, listen, that's, that's the interesting thing about... Roman Catholicism, they're kind of stuck in a dilemma because these things, like Trent, are supposed to be non-reformable. 
because they're the, the, the council has spoken, thus God has spoken, and this is binding. So they can't go back and say Trent was wrong, but what they do is they just go, they start saying something else, and then they put it all together and live with the incoherence. Okay, if you, if you go to the latest Catholic catechism and just look up whether there's any salvation outside of the Catholic Church, well, the official doctrine is no, there is not. But then you start reading it, and then they say, well, then there's this, but then, the, you know, the Protestants are probably okay, and maybe other religions. It's, you know, they start equivocating on everything. But they can't ever go back and say the council was wrong because then they're denying that the, that the council spoke for God. Okay? So, I, hey, I'm, I'm holding their nose to the Trent uh, fire here. <laughs> this is what you said. This is what we're debating. I would recommend, most of these are translated in Old English, I would recommend getting, uh, you can find this on the Internet, the, the canons on justification. I think there's 33 of them. And read the anathemas. And as you go through them, if you can decipher them, maybe it'll be hard for some people, but you can see what they're, what they're against. And they're, they're fingering Luther and Calvin with what they had to say, okay? So, very enlightening to read those anathemas. Now, some of them are correct. The first anathema is against Pelagianism. I'd agree with Rome that Pelagianism is heretical. But what, then what they do is they go to semi-Pelagianism, and they have ways of doing that. Thank you. I enjoy talking about the gospel with the, with the flock. God bless you. See you upstairs in a half hour. <laughs>